You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm always glad that you're here. And this week, we are doing something a little bit different. Um, I'm actually doing a podcast swap with another podcaster. She recently shared uh, my episode with Jen Greneman on highly sensitive people. And so this week, I'm excited to share an episode from her podcast, the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. And this is a space where parents and teachers unite to support neurodivergent youth. Uh, Dr. Emily King is a child psychologist and former school psychologist with expertise in nurturing and educating children and teens diagnosed with autism, ADHD, anxiety, learning disabilities, and or giftedness. Now, as a parent and a lifelong learner, uh, I was definitely Uh, intrigued to share this episode with you. And I think what Dr. Emily is doing is really powerful and important. So of course, I wanted to share her work with you. And I'm so grateful that she shared my work with her audience. So I love doing uh, collaborations like this. This is actually the first time I've ever done it, but I'm definitely on board for doing more, especially if the content is going to be really valuable to you. So please enjoy this episode from the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast, in it she speaks with Penn Holderness, and they're talking about why ADHD is actually a superpower. Enjoy. Well, you've got a great brain. It's not broken, doesn't necessarily line up with traditional education, and unfortunately, it doesn't line up with most traditional jobs. It doesn't mean that there isn't a number of opportunities, aren't a number of opportunities out there for you, both in your education and in your life, that will give you a chance to shine. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. On today's Learn with Dr. Emily podcast, we are welcoming none other than Penn Holderness to talk about how ADHD is awesome and then sometimes how it's not awesome. So I'm going to be asking Penn some questions from his neurodivergent perspective, and I don't really know what's going to happen. Okay, so you're like, you've got a very penetrating look that you're giving me right now. We here's the let, let's just let everybody know this. Emily and I have our friendship has mostly grown digitally over the last two it or has. three years because of a COVID and two, it's just easier right. when you're doing a podcast. And I don't know what I'm gonna say or what's gonna happen to me because here you are in the flesh. We I feel are like in person. you're gonna I feel like you're going to extract. <laughs> so Penn things. has graciously yeah. agreed to um, being asked some vulnerable questions about what it was like growing up with ADHD. And so we're going to dive in. And my goal in sharing his story and asking him questions that I often ask kids or might ask parents is to help all the parents and teachers listening to jump inside the shoes of a kid or a teenager or an adult with ADHD to think more about what that experience is like. Um, so here is a probably not so quick bio because there's a lot to say about you, it's but quite here it a goes. Few sentences. So Penn Holderness was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina, to a Presbyterian minister and a public school teacher. He played high school basketball and was 
a choral music student at Governor School of North Carolina, for those who know what that is. Penn went on to graduate from University of Virginia with a degree in philosophy where he sang in the all-male a cappella group, the Hullabahoos. That was not on Wikipedia. I just happened to know you that. You just know that because you're an a cappella person. That's right. That's right. That's right. Penn's first on-air journalism job was in Grand Junction, Colorado, followed by five years in Orlando. He then hosted three seasons of Designer Finals on HGTV and hosted a basketball show on CSTV with former University of North Carolina basketball coach Matt Doherty. Penn also worked as a video essayist for ABC and ESPN while living in New York before returning to North Carolina, where he anchored the evening news for WNCN-TV. Bingo. A lot of letters. This is a very long... I, I feel like you... I have more. Can I save this for my obituary sure. when it happens in, sure. in 50 years? There's not... Because I'm not going to do much else. You've done so think. much. Yeah. Okay. So you have probably first discovered Penn and the Holderness family from the Christmas Jammies parody of Will Smith's Miami that was really meant for a digital Christmas card. But long story short, it went viral and now they've been making videos ever since. Penn and his wife, Kim have been married for 16 years. Is that accurate? Or is it? Stand by. Stand by. <laughs> no. I, I shouldn't have asked that 17 question. 17 and 18 is in April. Awesome. <clears throat> so, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And their videos have resulted in over a billion views and 4.5 million followers on social media. Did you even know that? Yeah, we have to keep track of those things. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Yeah, so here. Penn and Ken both have... TV business experience. And so they're great storytellers. And now they own their own company, Holderness Family Productions, where Kim is CEO and Penn is CCO, Chief Creative Officer. I first met Penn and Kim as a guest on their podcast, where we discuss uh, mental health mixed with fun topics. And they also, of course, have talked about winning The Amazing Race. And they have a book that was released in 2021, and they live in Raleigh with their children, Lola and Charles, and their dog, Sonny. I had to include it all. Well, thank you for including uh, Sonny. Yeah. That's important. You, you, I see that it says fluffy on it, your- It um, does. But you didn't use that. I when didn't. You said and I skipped it because I felt okay. like it was getting a little long. So you just figured but if you Sonny took out is fluffy, fluffy. <laughs> yeah, it was just going to be way shorter. If you need to know- <laughs> You're the best. Just check out some videos of well, fluffy Sonny. Thank you for that lovely introduction. You're welcome. Okay, so I wanted to dive in first with, were you diagnosed with ADHD? Or do you feel like you kind of knew something was different? Like, what's your memory of the very first time you were like, I think I might be different than my friends? The first time I felt that way was pretty early. Okay. It was, I think, honestly, the the ticks. I had other friends who would, you know, they would fly off the handle and, God, you can't use any of these words anymore, but the, the I was called a spaz a lot. Uh-huh. Um, and I know that's not, that word is no longer there, but that's what I was called. Yeah. Um, and it was insinuating the fact that I would have a lot of energy and sometimes it would get the most of me and I would cry really easily mm-hmm. or uh, get really, really happy and stop making so much sense that the people around me would just move on with their day and say, we're going to let him go be over there by himself. Uh, the, the one time I remember, cause my, and I don't blame her for this. My mom was really grossed out about it was I got back from bra- basketball practice when I was about eight. And it was one of those practices where I wasn't running much, but I was having to learn all these different parts of an offense and just sitting there and not being able to shoot baskets. I, my nervous tick was I chewed on my shirt. Mm-hmm. So my cotton shirt and 
there was a ring of what she thought was sweat. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not really that sweaty. And she's like, and she looked and she could see that it was, there was almost like a tear yeah. in my shirt. And so for about an hour, I was just chewing on my shirt. Because when your body couldn't move, your mouth had to move. You, you tell me. Yep, that's, that's what's happening. Okay, but that was, yeah. th- that was the first time I realized, oh, I think her reaction as a neat person, very, <laughs> very neat person, not unlike my wife, was horror and disgust and uh, I'd probably not saying, oh, you're neurodivergent because no one knew right. what that was. Right. I didn't hear the term ADD mm-hmm. probably until college. Okay. It's so po- you weren't diagnosed with ADHD as a child? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah. No, I didn't get tested until it became a real issue with uh, my ability to graduate from college. Okay. So what do you think happened in high school? How'd you make it through? Well, I I took a lot of courses that were... I think quick reward intensive. I was pretty good, pretty good at science. I was pretty good at math. Uh, I was pretty good at memorizing vocabulary words. I was God awful at comprehension and really bad at history. Just hearing like long stories of anybody that wasn't me. And I want to hear about me. Um, (laughs) And, but then also it it was kind of an art school. Jordan was, I Mm -hmm. think you can. So uh, chorus was a class Mm -hmm. that, was hard to get into like the, the high end chorus. So it was a little bit of a performing arts school. And that was when you, you look at my college resume, it was very largely, um, performance based. Yeah. And so my grades were good. I definitely, I, I don't remember ever, uh, getting a, a math question wrong until I got into AP. It was just, it was just pretty simple for me. And, uh, they were good enough and I tested really well. Mm-hmm. And the SAT, I think the SAT actually, from everything I've heard from other people that I know who have a neurodivergent brain, if you are able to really get into that kind of hyper-focus mode and block mm-hmm. everything else out, it can, you can be advantageous. You can be better yeah. at taking those kinds of standardized tests. Yeah. So in a way, the, the testing part of school worked for your brain. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Until I got into the more critical thinking. Right. Which was college. Yes. Yeah. Or, or a lot, some of the AP uh, classes mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. But that was, in, you know, a senior year, you're already, <laughs> grades are already out there. So, yep. So let's talk a little bit more about that hyper-focus. So mm-hmm. you've talked about that, like, as your superpower. Um, when did you notice that in school? And then when did you realize, oh, I think I can make this part of my job? Well, in school, I think musically, mm-hmm. there was an element of concentration when you have to very quickly memorize, understand, and then produce a sound, whether it's with a piano or with your voice. And I, I picked up things very quickly. So I, I know that's not necessarily school. Some of that was outside of it. Mm-hmm. I think the other, I'm not sure, I'm trying to separate hyperfocus from memorization. Right, because they right. are different. So would you say hyperfocus is more aligned with your interests when your interest, it's loaded with your interest because you can memorize things really well mm-hmm. if you're not interested, although it's probably better when you're interested. So if you're really interested in it and you're like getting in a zone, basically. Yeah. This might be the best example of it. I was always a little bit jazzed up when someone gave me math homework that had a bunch of problems. And mm, that I, gives me a panic attack. I know, I know. And it gives <laughs> it gives Kim one too, but it's, it's this... Uh, it's this problem that you can solve and you're good at it. And 
uh, you have the tools. And if, if you sit there and stare at it for a long time, you get frustrated. And I've seen my daughter like stare at a math problem for 45 minutes and until she cries and just not reach out for help. And mm-hmm. so I would do my math homework in the 10 minutes in between math and when I got to English class, mm-hmm. I would do it every night. And it was about an hour worth of homework that the teacher would say it's like an hour worth of homework. Yeah. But I would, um, I stayed in my seat. The, the math teacher knew I was going to do it. No one ever came into the class really early. So I'd stay in the seat for, say it was 10 minutes, for like seven minutes because my yeah. class was really close. And I just did it all right there. And I turned it into a challenge for myself. Okay. Sure. There were some days when I couldn't get it all the way done, but on a lot of occasions, I would finish an hour's worth of math homework in about yeah. seven minutes. So that's a really great coping strategy. Usually, sometimes we try to teach kids that, but you obviously made it up on your own, which is turn this into a competition with myself, mm-hmm. which was basically a timed competition. Like you knew you could do the thing, but can I do it really quick? Cause I know maybe later I'm not going to do it cause I'll be distracted. And I'll, would you have forgotten about it later? And you're trying to get it done right then. I just don't think I would have done it as quickly. Mm-hmm. I think I would have, if I, I probably would have gotten frustrated. Yeah. Like it was fresh in my mind. I think that my brain has a lot of really good, uh, Ram, yeah. The, like the, the, the hot memory uh-huh. and the ROM, like the cold storage memory, once it gets there, it's hard to bring it back out to where it is. So once my brain is working, I'll, I'll tell you some stories as, as an adult that mirror that as well. Yeah. When we are seeking out brand deals or um, creative meetings with other people and we have to sit there for an hour and listen to whatever their brief is, they always, almost always want to come away with some sort of musical option. Mm-hmm. And in three occasions. You can ask Amory this because she's been in the rooms with me. I'll, I excuse myself from the meeting because I've already started writing it in my head and I can't pay attention to what's going on. And in a lot of cases, I will have the full complete song uh, by the time the meeting is either has just ended or maybe by the end of the day. So that's the hyper-focus you're talking about mm-hmm. because a, a neurotypical brain cannot do that. I, I can't not do it. I can't right. like once, once I get an idea and people are talking, I'm like, what are you doing? What this are you people like, just talking about? Yeah. Right. So that is, it's almost, um, sounds a little bit like a, a positive compulsion. Like you have to go do it to get mm-hmm. it out. Does it feel like that? Like yeah. you have to get it out or, I mean, I think a lot of songwriters will also describe that. Like I kind of already knew the song. It just came through me and came yeah. out of me and I had to get it out. Well, it's interesting. So, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda and I have a mutual friend. Okay. Um, the guy who actually was his musical director and he was, um, I've, I've gotten to know him very well. And I, look, if you're a friend of a friend, you shouldn't be asking him about Lin-Manuel all the time, but he did, he volunteered this information to me because he saw how quickly I wrote music sometimes. And he said, it took him 18 months to write his first song. It took him the rest of the, the musical he wrote over the course of maybe like another year. So he, he had, has this perfectionism about himself that he has to get it just right before he sends it out to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there are some people who don't do that and they're really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I wish I could be more like that and let something simmer just a little bit longer okay. to, to, I mean, almost to just kind of edit myself and make it better instead of being like, Oh, we're done. So is that the downside of hyperfocus and impulsivity probably? Quality control. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I just think that there's a governor on how, how good your work can be if you don't sure. take enough time to really try to perfect it. But I mean, look, my job has, they want things fast. Right. They, they want things turned around quickly. Yeah. And so I've been very fortunate to find something for now that is asking for that. Yeah. 
but I really, I am curious and I know you don't normally do adults, so I'm just trying to get free <laughs> therapy out of this. Um, what it is about the ADHD brain, and this is frankly for me and for my son, um, who also has been diagnosed with it, that just won't do long-term projects. Mm-hmm. Because those are the important things. That's what you should be learning and should be Well, doing. it's all about executive functioning mm-hmm. and the weaknesses that can occur in executive functioning. So for everybody listening, executive functioning is we dream up a plan in our head. You're good, you're good at that. Mm-hmm. We get started. You're good at that if it's your thing, mm-hmm. not if it's a history project. <laughs> Under, yeah, it has to yeah. be of personal interest. Right, it has right? to be of personal yeah. interest. And then you maintain focus to that thing. So here's where ADHD comes in. You have trouble maintaining focus and then you follow it through to completion and then you monitor how it went. And that's where like revisions happen and drafts happen. And and all of that takes time so that you can, the beginning, it's like the beginning of that ADHDers are pretty good with. Not so much initiation if it's not of personal interest, but that's where in school we have to really pair the task with an interest if we're going to get kids started mm-hmm. on anything, right? And it sounds like in your schooling, you were able to find, you know, things that worked for you and you just kind of stayed in those lanes. And I always tell parents, find the interests, find the strengths and teach from there. And there's going to be stuff kids hate about school. And I'm guessing that the, just the being in a school building all day was probably something that you did not like about school. Yeah, I mean, thank God for the performing arts element, which was sometimes twice a day Mm -hmm. that was, uh, was very kinetic and Mm -hmm. moving and it was challenging. And you're sometimes you were sweating when you left because, you know, choreography, choreography, jazz hands, jazz hands don't do themselves. (laughs) And it was interesting because when I got to college, everything kind of crashed. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So college of course is different in structure because you are able to get up and move around and walk to different buildings, but no one's checking in on you. Right. Yeah. So um, it's like K through 12 school probably had its downsides with being in a building all day and Mm -hmm. having to take things that were not your thing, but you found your way. And then college, what kind of fell apart for you in college? And what did you start to notice? I mean, pretty early on, I just felt outmatched with some of the, some of the things that people were doing, which was like, they were, going out and partying and then they were waking up at seven o'clock in the morning and going to class and then studying for three hours and then going back. I mean, kids back in the (laughs) nineties, it wasn't quite a binge drinking culture, but it was like, have a couple of beers, explore the social side of your life, which by the way, I think is a great thing and was good for me in college because I didn't have any social life outside of performing arts. Um, before that, before that, I played a little bit of basketball. That wasn't really, I, I don't know how social that was, but, um, I think my parents always thought and believed that I didn't get good grades in college because I partied too much. Mm. And some of that might be true. I mean, I definitely was like, Whoa, like no one's here. No one's checking on me. I don't have to go to class. Right. They don't even hold you accountable until the tests come out. Well, I'm sure I'll just be able to like the night before memorize this and just handle it. Is that how you got through high school? I didn't party in high school. No, no, no. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me rephrase. Yeah. Did you just sit through class, not take notes, and then you just took the test and did well? Or did you? Yeah, I didn't take notes. Because a lot of of students with ADHD, usually they 
crash and burn in either ninth grade or college. And what Mm -hmm. happens is they've sat in school and they're like, I get it. I don't need to write it down. I'm not good at writing it down and paying attention at the same time. So I'm just going to maybe listen. It's in here. And then I'll take the test and they, they make it just fine through school. Sometimes it's ninth, tenth grade gets hard. But it sounds like you made it all the way with probably not a lot of study skills because you didn't practice that part. You yeah, just took the test. That's a really good point. Yeah. So well, let's let's go through each subject. Math, you don't really take notes. Right. You solve problems. You There's, got that. And 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 once you solve it once, you solve it again. It's there. It's locked in your brain. Chemistry, science, to me, they were all parts of the universe and parts of the body that as soon as you know, or, or whatever it is, that as soon as you learn it, like that's me. Yeah. That's a personal interest. That's my molecules. That's the spa- space. Oh my God. Space. You could tell me something about space. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Um, and then, but then you get you know, English, you memorize a word, you use it in a sentence. Good. Like that's not going, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. But then you got like history and, um, you know, some levels of like poetry, understanding like Chaucer. Yeah. And, and if you don't take notes on that and understand those things, you run into trouble. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know that I went to the most challenging school. It was a great school and the teachers mm-hmm. were fantastic. But I think if I'd gone to a more challenging school, all of my deficiencies would have been discovered while I was still in high school, potentially, and not when I was off on my own, mm-hmm. uh, enjoying myself. So whose idea was it to get tested? It was mine. Okay. How'd you know about uh, it? A friend of mine yeah. uh, who, I mean, it, it was my junior year. I was, it was on my second stint of academic probation. I can say this now because I don't think I'm going to ever apply for a job where they ask me for my GPA, but I, I I think you're in the clear pen. I was always (laughs) terrified that people would ask me for my GPA. It was like a two eight or something. And, um, it was, it was not good. And so I had a friend who actually approached me and said, uh, have you ever been tested for ADD? And at that point I'd heard of it and I was Mm -hmm. like, no. And, and she said, well, you have it. <laughs> your friend, like your college friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Her name's MJ. And she also had uh, ADD. She's like, that's why we're buddies. That's why we're friends. That's why, that's why <laughs> things go so sideways when we, uh, when we hang out. <laughs> and uh, she offered me a riddle and I didn't take it. Mm-hmm. It just I was, I didn't want to take a pill that I didn't have. Right. Um, and so I went home between my junior and senior year and had uh, the testing. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty obvious. And they uh, immediately put me on medication because at that time, I don't think that there was really a holistic option when it, when it came to that. Mm -hmm. I think they've, if you had ADHD, they gave Mm -hmm. you either uh, Ritalin for me, it was like a time release capsule called Dexedrin, Mm -hmm. which I thought was Dexatrim when the first time they said it, I'm like, why are you giving me a weight loss drug? I'm, I look like this. By the way, I did lose about 15 pounds. Yeah, you do lose weight on stimulants uh, sometimes. Yeah, and I didn't have much of an appetite anymore. And all my yeah. fraternity brothers tried to steal my pills, um, which <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that later. But uh, yeah, we're not advocating several things that have been mentioned on this no, podcast. No, it's awful. No, but you asked me the, the I did. story. This is was, the truth of what it looked like in the 90s as yeah. a college student. This is true. So that's, that's what happened. Okay. And uh, I returned to school. Well, first of all, I spent a summer just kind of seeing what the medication did for me, which was, I think the first four or five days were, were pretty incredible. Uh, just, just noticing things. Okay. Like what, what did you notice? Just, I mean, like I, walking on the beach and being able to compartmentally appreciate a bird, the sound of the ocean and the person who you're talking to without losing any of that experience. So it allowed you to hold on to things at the same time. 
Yes. Okay. Because what would your brain, what does your brain do on the beach? Well, my friend's talking and I see the bird or I, or I hear the ocean or, and, or the ocean reminds me of a shark or something. Right. So when someone calls your name, you're just like bird. I'm, I missed what you said because I was looking at the bird. Yeah, or yeah. you just go to the famous ADHD crutch of when you're not paying attention, you say, wow, that's crazy because <laughs> that can really cover anything. That can cover something that's funny. That can cover like a death in the family. That can c- cover like a really good job promotion. It's all crazy. That's actually a really good it, I, I feel awful telling for, you, but I use it all the ADHD time. Teenagers. If you hear me say, wow, that's crazy, I haven't paid attention to a single and thing. And now we said. know. Yeah. Well, I already told my wife and so she... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so you go to one of those crutches. Yeah, so do you remember, thinking back on all those school experiences, do you remember teachers who got you, even if they didn't know, like, what it was Mm -hmm. they were getting, you know, but they understood that something was different. You needed to kind of be in Mm -hmm. charge of saying, no, I need to do this because I'm interested or "I I need to stand like this while I learn or whatever it is. Who do you remember getting it? Mark McCombs. Hollis Self, Dorothy Finlan, and Scott Hill. Okay. And I just want to point out to everyone listening that if you're working with kids right now, they're going to remember your yeah. names. I know their first names. Yeah. Um, those were the four that they got me the most. Yeah. And what, what did they get? Different things. Uh, Ms. Self, who I think she passed away, she challenged the crap out of me. Okay. She, she wanted me to get better. And I like she was, she was very harsh on me. And even when I thought I was doing the best, she said that it wasn't good enough, but she did it in a way that she knew that I had, that I had more potential than this. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing works for me too. Okay. Um, I know that sounds crazy. Especially, it, it may not work for kind of more sensitive, anxious people, but it worked for you. For sure. Yeah. And, and she rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but she also, she taught, she taught video editing in ninth grade. And she, in like the, what was that? The. It was Early. 1989. Yeah. Um, so, but it was like uh, stop motion. Like, okay. uh, like uh, I did, I did a video called the death of Gumby. I still remember it. <laughs> and it was an animation of, and I, we built a, a set in a theater, but we also like studied Citizen Kane and Battleship Potemkin. She had an entire film studies thing, but it was in the third quarter and you couldn't do it unless you got a B or better in the first two quarters, which were like heavy duty critical, like uh, honors English in ninth grade. Yeah. It was competitive. It was difficult. Every time you stepped in class, you were terrified that you were going to get something wrong. Honestly, that works. Was that fun for you, being terrified? No. <laughs> but it was, a, okay, remember the three things, and this, who's the woman uh, who does How to ADHD on YouTube? I want to give her credit. She's wonderful, and I can't remember her name. Jessica McCabe, that's her. She has a bunch of just little kind of digestible things about her ADHD, and mm-hmm. she says, here's the three things that ADHD people need for their dopamine sensors to yeah. kind of get along with the environment and to move forward. It has to be something of personal interest. Yep. It has to be something that's challenging. It has to be something that's new. Mm. So I feel like there's something new every day in that class. Yep. It was definitely of personal interest because you get to this film school. Like there's something at the, the, the sort of mini film school in the mm-hmm. third period. And boy, it was challenging. Yeah. It was hard. So here's my question. At what point does challenging become terrified or scared because so many students I, mm-hmm. and kids I work with, they'll, they'll shut down when they're scared. There was something about challenging. And of course it's individualized to every person, but for right. you, what was the secret sauce for challenging? 
Okay, so can I ask you this question back? Yeah. Why are they scared? Is it because they they feel like they're... Oh, so most kids would not feel like they could do it. So it's more about a capability. For the, yeah. You know, we, so we you given the same capable. set of circumstances and context, yeah, we was, might make the same that decisions as anybody really that we're in judgment of. So <laughs> I just when think... I was growing okay. up, like, I thought I could stories. do anything. Okay, so there was a confidence the about you... somehow. That I think well, helped so you stay in the challenge zone. Well, it's also the reason that I almost failed out of college. Story, I mean, but, and, and but all because you were confident, you're like, oh, I got well. five. Oh, yeah. Um, five. No, I'm serious. That's, okay. I think that's what happened. I, I just I'm really so I thought I was to, to I thought I was smarter than everybody else. Help us that all did not help my social life in high school. And live life mm. with a little more compassion. But I did. It was probably irrational confidence, but I had too much confidence. So it worked until In academics. I had no confidence in my social skills or my physical skills. Or my emotional skills, but I, I think academic, I felt pretty confident. And of course, musical, I'm sure you had confidence. I was pretty confident with that, yeah. And, you know, confidence, as we all know, has to do with um, when our, I mean, our anxiety is low when our confidence is high. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like you said, you needed a little more anxiety at UVA, like just a little oh, bit more. Yeah, I need a lot more. <laughs> but when we're confident about something, that means that we are okay. We are okay to stay in that challenge zone and it's not scary. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a, a fire being lit under us, which is a good thing. Yeah. I also think I had. I didn't have like as many friends as the captain of the football team, but I had really good friends Yeah, who um, I think understood, supported, and helped with that confidence. And I definitely had good parents when it came to Yeah, let's to that. talk about your parents. They were great. Yeah, so even though they, you don't think they knew it was ADHD? No, no one knew what it was. No one knew like, no what one, it was. No. What did they see in you? And I mean, how did they nurture that? I mean, what, what are you mm-hmm. just so grateful that they maybe did without knowing that they were doing it? Yeah, so my mom was the primary parent, mm-hmm. and this is not a knock on my dad. My dad was a Presbyterian minister in a medium-sized church, so he didn't have a lot of people, at least early on, who were taking things off of his plate. So he was gone most of the time, but he wasn't like gallivanting around. He right. was in hospitals and in hostels and dealing and, and raising money. Uh, mm-hmm. He was like a tireless fundraiser in the Durham community. So he, he did make his time count, but the most of the day-to-day was with my mom. Mm-hmm. She uh, was also a musician and just found ways to inject music into every single part of my life because she knew that I liked it. She knew that I was good at it. And um, I think she liked it as well. So mm-hmm. that was the way that we communicated. That's awesome. When I was 13, she bought me this ridiculously expensive synthesizer called a Roland D50 that I had seen in a shop window and knew because the clothes that I wore and the job that my dad had, and I I knew that I wasn't well off. And so I didn't even ask for it. It Mm -hmm. just would make no sense to ask. I remember it was $1,395. And it was on sale from like $1,700. But this place called the Music Loft had it for $1,395. I'll never forget that number because it was blowing my mind. Um, and she gave it to me for Christmas and oh, poor my mom, poor my mom. So if you give one kid, even if they love it, like a $1,395 <laughs> gift, you have to give the same amount to the other guy. And my, and my brother didn't really ask for anything. So she gave him a bunch. This this year was, Dale will tell you all about this. She gave him as many CDs or records or tapes or whatever as she could find because my brother was a big music fan. And then like $400 worth of socks. It was like, <laughs> The biggest sock haul of all time. Dale still talks about this, but it's it was my parents making sure. And I think after right. that, he's like, Mom, you can just give me cash next time. It's totally okay. 
And there, I mean, there weren't a lot of presents like that, right. but that was, that was one that, um, I think she gave it to me because she believed that that was something that I was meant to, uh, have to develop my brain. And I bet you pretty much felt very seen in that moment by I your did. mom. I did. I mean, from my dad too, I'm sure he, I mean, he was the one uh, who was signing the check and was probably like, what? <laughs> what is I this? think we can buy a grand piano for this much. Yeah. And I kept that thing um, through until we moved in, until Kim and I moved to New York. It's what I played with our college band. It's what I used when I was in 10th, yeah, 10th grade, because I hadn't made the, the, the top mm-hmm. show choir. And they brought me on as a musical accompanist for like special effects sounds. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, it was with me most of the time. That's awesome. It was my best friend. <laughs> was it was my only say, friend. It sounds like a security blanket. <laughs> it was a little bit of a security blanket. <laughs> and then I, I found one on uh, eBay and I, I bought it like two years ago. So I have it. I have like, I don't even play it. I just, it's just sitting there next to me when I write stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. So I want to talk real quick about who's listening to this podcast because it's parents raising kids and teens with ADHD. I know I have some teens with ADHD who listen. Um, they've told me. They're like, thanks for having a podcast. Oh, that's cool. Um, do, you, so do you feel hip when you hear I, that? I kind of feel hip yeah. that I'm on their their list. Radar. Yeah. So let's start with parents. What would you want parents to know? You are a parent. Mm-hmm. But also, what do you want parents to know maybe if, they're, if their kid is young? So kids are now getting diagnosed with ADHD pretty young. So mm-hmm. not super young because all kids are active. All kids have a short attention span. But around you know, five to eight years old, if it's a more um, severe um, presentation of ADHD, we can pretty much name mm-hmm. that that's a struggle. So if like, a, you know, if a parent is new to this journey, sure. what do you want them to know? We really love you. <laughs> we do. We, we know whether it's in the front of our head or the back of our head that we can't do this without you. Mm-hmm. Having said that, we really can't help some of the weird stuff that we're doing. I know that because I've lived for 48 years now and I still do some of the things that I did back then. Um, I'm, I'm currently not medicated. I was only medicated for a couple of years because I was blessed to find something that worked for my type of brain. Mm-hmm. We need a different type of education than the type of education that at least most schools provide. And I know this because I've been through it Mm -hmm. and we do, we do very well with quick problem solving, I think for the most part, but it's sometimes hard to see that far down the road. And it's not because we don't care. Mm -hmm. That's not because we don't want to be good. It's because our brains are fixated on what's right in front of us. Right. So I think I said it before, if you have a computer, there's RAM and there's ROM. Our RAM is amazing, which is that's the stuff that like really quickly gets to stuff. And then like our, our long-term storage is, is a little problematic. Mm-hmm. We really don't want to use it as an excuse, but we have to sometimes. If you give us grace with understanding and if you give us some time and if you take the time to understand what is going on in our brain, I think that grace will come naturally. We will try harder to fix it than if we're being shamed for it. And that's not going to be easy for parents to do because we are maddening sometimes because we, we probably don't match up with your brain. 
Right. Even and if I, you even if you have ADHD. Well, that, so that was the other thing I was going to say is in my line of work over the last probably 20 years of, you know, I started working in schools in 2001 all the way until 2010 and then have been in private practice since then. But just in my career, as we were talking about the timeframes of when no one really knew what this was and then you weren't diagnosed till college, I work with lots of parents mm-hmm. who for the first time are, I will give, you know, feedback about what I think is going on with their kid. And they're like, you just described my brain. I've just been diagnosed. Some, I've been overcompensating <laughs> yeah. all these years. And it's like, you look around and you're like, wait, this isn't hard for everyone else. And so I think there's a parent journey there too, that obviously you're going to have compassion for your kid. If you also have ADHD, but you're absolutely right. Even two brains with ADHD are very different. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because for the most part, if you're a parent like me, you've coped with these things for so long and it's taken you probably 30 years to get to that point. If you, like you not understanding why your your son or daughter is acting like this is like saying, why aren't you 30 years older, 30 years older? Right. They don't have the experience. But I, mean, I even struggle with it too. Cause I see, boy, I see all of it. My son chews in a shirt. He's mm-hmm. like, that's the weirdest thing. Why is it just us? It's just me and it's, him. It's not. But it seems like it. I don't know anybody else who does it. It's not just you. It, but I still, I look at it and I'm like, oh, dude, stop it. It's gross. And I have, I have to, that's wrong. That's the wrong response. And, but I, I still do. It's, so it just is impossible for someone to give full grace, like right. full grace, empathy, and understanding. But I think both sides have to try. Here's mm-hmm. what I would tell. The one thing I would tell kids and parents, you've got to be forgiving, but you got to try. You can't use it as an excuse and just lean on it. Mm-hmm. You've got to, if there's a list or if there's something out there that works, you've, you've got to say it and not have shame in it. That's the a, a reason why a lot of people haven't said, oh, I got to make a list or oh, I got to, you know, I got to go to a, you know, a, a, even to, to a therapist or a, to a counselor mm-hmm. to help us out with that is because um, there's shame around this. Right. Uh, there's shame as a parent. There's shame as a kid. There's shame everywhere. So if you don't get out and talk about it and make an effort, then that just kind of festers. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're here talking about it is because yeah, thank you. I want everyone to just, this is normalized. You are working and playing and in school with all kinds of brains and the more you understand that everybody's brain is different, the better. So what would you say to any kids who are listening? Teens, kids, teens, college students with ADHD. Well, you've got a great brain. It's not broken. It doesn't, line up, doesn't necessarily line up with traditional education. And unfortunately, it doesn't line up with most traditional jobs. And so that's what school is, right? It's preparing you for jobs and because jobs are all kind of their own way, then school mm-hmm. kind of has to be its own way too. Sorry, that's a bit of a, of a tough start for this, but it doesn't mean that there isn't a number of opportunities, aren't a number of opportunities out there for you, both in your education and in your life that will give you a chance to shine. Yeah. And then this is going to be our final question because I think it might have some discussion mm-hmm. is I feel like we're at a point and are just generational shifts where jobs are a lot more diverse in terms of mm-hmm. being able to do different things that have matched your brain, and school is not. So school is still preparing our kids for a traditional track, usually. And you have had a very non-traditional career over time. So yeah. 
you've asked me this question actually before, but I'm going to ask you if you could design a school for your brain Mm -hmm. and other similar, but of course different brains from yours, what would it look like that would have prepared you maybe sooner or more confidently, although you didn't need any more confidence. It doesn't sound like it really does. (laughs) Maybe other kids, other kids need it. That's the big thing we got out of this. I was a cocky (laughs) son of a gun. So how would you design that school? What would you want to see differently in um, your perspective of how we're educating our kids? I think I would, you know how Derek Zoolander had this school for kids who can't read good. Like it was just, it was very out there and kind of on the nose. He wanted to build, I think I would call it the school for people with neurodivergent brains, even though ADHD is a horrible name. It'd be like a long, ridiculous name. Like I would lean into it Um, instead of just walking around saying, well, I'm going to get over this. Like you, you have ADHD or whatever we're going to call it. Cause we're going to change the name because the name sucks. Uh-huh, we've talked um, about this. Yeah. I, uh, EFD executive functioning difference. Let's just call it. I that. like it. We'll call it the EF, the, the EFD school and everyone who goes there high fives each other's and like, this is our brain. And we will have classes like math and science and we'll, um, uh, I don't think there's definitely not going to be people sitting and facing Right. A teacher. They got rid of that, right? They don't do that as much anymore. Not as much, but middle school and high school are still very much you're sitting and facing a teacher. And we're just going to lean into it. We're going to say, here's your dopamine hit. Like, here's something (laughs) you're going to do here. It's a natural dopamine hit. We're going to do this. And then when we have to learn history and Mm -hmm. English, we're just going to call that the crappy classes (laughs) or just like something that we're we're all in this together. Like, these are the hard, really tough classes. And we're going to make those things of personal interest. Yep. New and challenging. So they're going to be taught, not in a textbook format, but in some way that either allows you to imagine it. I don't, I'm not saying put up a video and watch it, but in some dynamic way that allows you to imagine it, whether that's taking on a, 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 a role of someone in history for an entire year and have to live it through them, like something different. Mm-hmm. The history classes and the English classes are going to be freaking 15 minutes long. <laughs> but we're going to do them three times a day or something like that. We're not going to sit there for an hour and hear about the new deal. It just doesn't like, it doesn't because work. Probably 15 minutes in, I'm done. you're ready to write a song about the new yeah. deal and you can't listen to the le- rest of the lecture. Yeah, I want to test after 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> and then literally later that day, let's do it again and give me another test. But it's so we just need for things like that. We just need, to, to break it up. And I don't think there's anything wrong with learning that way. Right. I think I might have 47 classes in a day <laughs> and each one is 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course there are huge, every parent's huge like getting a hives right now. Right. Teachers and there's principals, huge structural yeah. systemic issues with no, creating not. this school, but not if everyone's got it, but if yeah. everyone is there who needs flexibility and it's normalized yeah. and it's not othered, that's yeah. the point. What about um, also, I always felt like I learned more when I I was either saying it out loud or teaching it or something myself. Mm -hmm. What if there's like an apprenticeship situation where you actually have to teach it? Right. So, I I mean, I think that many would say in the research on memory and recall that information is really not synthesized until you can teach it. Uh Um, And so when we're just testing and we're spitting it back out, we all know that there's stuff we knew in school that is gone forever from our brain because we memorized it. It was not really something we actually learned and could apply. So there's 
definitely something to be said for that. Yeah. And I think for any, a lot of things that you're describing actually work for all learners um, and just works a little better and in a shorter time frame yeah. <laughs> for ADHD brains. So it's funny, we haven't really talked about as much about the curriculum as we have about the approach to, to learning it. Yeah. But I never really sat and thought like, do we really need history? Can't you just read a book about that in your spare time if you're interested in? Because a lot of our history is really depressing and teaches mm -hmm. us that we were terrible people. Well, I think that that's all <laughs> in the conversation about really? education. I mean, not currently, but I think that many people who are educating neurodivergent learners are, are asking some of those yeah. same questions. It mostly comes up with math. I know you liked math, but there are many, many kids who okay. the most common question is, I am never going to use calculus ever in my life. That's, so, I mean, there is a certain level. There's where definitely like, a, um, you might feel like history, how many kids feel about math because sure. the re it doesn't feel relevant. So I do think there's this relevancy factor that goes along with what we've talked about, mm -hmm. about, you know, we need to be educating our kids in a way that prepares them for what they're doing in the world. And we're in this like shift of jobs are evolving, but education is not. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I'm super well, passionate about. And, and you're, you're much better at it than I am. So I just designed the most ridiculous school <laughs> of all time that I would go to and probably not even anybody else. But I, I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is I, I just think for me and probably a lot of people like me, and this really affected me in college, like sitting there for two hours sometimes for a lecture mm -hmm. or for 90 minutes or for however long it is and expecting your brain not to, to wander mm -hmm. um, and then feeling ashamed when it does and you like snap back out of it and all of this stuff has happened. There could be some other way to do this yeah. that allows for just a little bit more, um, I use the word staccato, kind of like bouncing around mm -hmm. like a little bit learning mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, the, the, this very long period of. Yeah. And I think that there are ways that we can't change overarching system of education, but you can absolutely pull some of the things you've said just today. A teacher could say, oh, I can make that happen in my classroom for this one kid within the structure that that teacher's working mm -hmm. in. Or a parent could say, oh yeah, I'm going to make sure my kid gets tons of movement or we align it with interest or whatever for a task at home. Like we have to just start on that level, on that micro level, because that's the stuff that makes the difference. Like you were saying with your mom and how she incorporated music. Can yeah. you imagine if you just had somebody telling you to do stuff all day long and it wasn't aligned with your interests. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. ADHD is very important uh, with the people that you have around you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the case with anything. Yeah. With anxiety, with, with any of it. But like, I'm not, you're not interviewing me as someone who has a bio, who has any level of success right now, if it weren't for my wife and her ability to um, put up with me, <laughs> give me grace, but also motivate and challenge me, like not to let it be an excuse. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm really fortunate in that sense that yeah. I found someone who's able to do that. And that's, that is proof that if you are living with someone uh, with ADHD, like you're the first person they'll thank when they win the Nobel prize or an Oscar or whatever the heck it is that they win. Cause they can win mm -hmm. if they, if they work really hard. Um, but that is so important. Yeah. So just keep showing up for your ADHD people. Keep showing up for ADHD people. Give them grace. Don't let it be an excuse. And and don't be afraid to talk about it. The talk is what makes shame go away. Yep. 
Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to share it out, subscribe, and leave us a review. Till next time.